KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. California Secretary of State Alex Padilla says, don't think of next Tuesday as election day. Think of Tuesday, November 3rd as the last day to vote. With so many options of voting early by mail or in person, we're really encouraging people to vote early if they can and avoid those uh, lines. Padilla says if you haven't registered to vote, you can still do it at any in-person voting location. Meanwhile, early voting returns are way up. Nearly 9 million ballots already cast between vote-by-mail ballots that have been returned and some of the in-person voting locations throughout the state. So all signs point to a big, big turnout this year. He says it'll likely take longer to cast your ballot in person. That's because all of the equipment needs to be sanitized before and after every voter uses it. A rise in white supremacist incidents nationwide has election officials on edge. The FBI has listed white supremacy as the number one domestic terror threat. California Secretary of State Alex Padilla says the state plans for disruption at the polls before every election. Uh, I think what's unique about 2020 is, uh, you know, the political environment that we find ourselves in. It's in it seems to feel a little bit more tense right now. Uh, folks are a little bit more animated given everything that uh, 2020 has thrown at us. There's concern that groups responding to the president's call to watch the polls may result in voter intimidation. Padilla says watchers can observe, but they cannot interfere with the process. So far, the elections statewide have been free of overt acts of interference. It's Friday, October 30th. You're listening to San Diego News Matters from KPBS News. I'm Annika Colbert. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The number of polling places in the county has dropped from about 1,600 to just about 235. iNews Source investigative reporter Jill Castellano explains how that drastic change could impact voters. We compared this year's polling locations to the ones chosen in 2018, and we found some neighborhoods may be facing more challenges than others. Zip codes that include City Heights and Old Town lost all but one of their polling locations. But other zip codes with smaller populations, like in Point Loma and parts of Rancho Bernardo, are keeping more of their polling centers. 
Mindy Romero runs the Center for Inclusive Democracy at USC. She says that means voters in some neighborhoods are going to have a harder time because they're no longer within walking distance of a polling place. For some communities, that means that it's, it's actually going to be a greater chore and um, it may be more of a struggle to figure out how to get there on Election Day or before Election Day. County Registrar Michael Vu says his office considered a lot of factors when picking polling locations, including transportation access. Frankly, our decision making has been thus far pretty darn solid in terms of how we have managed the election. Polling locations open Saturday and will stay open through Tuesday. For KPBS, I'm iNewsource investigative reporter Jill Castellano. This story was co-reported with Mary Plummer. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. Jose Alfredo Castro Gutierrez ran out of his apartment in mental distress, carrying a shower rod. That's when a San Diego police officer shot and killed him. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us that newly released footage of the encounter again raises questions over police response to people with mental health issues. The San Diego Police Department waited more than a week to release the body camera footage of the shooting in San Diego's Mountain View neighborhood. The footage shows Castro Gutierrez running out of his rented apartment with a shower rod and towards officers. Castro Gutierrez, a Mexican citizen and legal permanent resident, can be heard yelling ayúdame or help me in his final moments. One officer tases Castro Gutierrez, another fires a beanbag round at him, a third officer shoots Castro Gutierrez, killing him. Eugene Iredale, an attorney for Castro Gutierrez's family, says he had been running to the police looking for help. His demeanor and the manner in which he was running made it very clear that he wasn't really a threat to anybody. The shooting was the second killing of a Mexican national in recent weeks by law enforcement in San Diego. On October 23rd, Border Patrol agents shot and killed a man in San Isidro. SDPD's homicide unit will review both killings. Max Adler, KPBS News. Students from financially challenged families will be getting access to high-speed internet. That's thanks to the San Diego County and local philanthropists. KPBS's John Carroll reports. On Thursday, Supervisor Nathan Fletcher announced the county is allocating $2 million out of its general fund and the San Diego Foundation is kicking in another $1 million to provide high-speed internet connectivity to more than 4,300 students throughout the county. The King Chavez Charter Schools in Barrio Logan is one of the recipients. Their director of technology, Carlos Salazar, says a father of three students was recently at the school to pick up what he thought would be just one hotspot. Salazar told him that he would receive one for each of his sons. You can see the, the swelling and tears coming up on his eyes because he knew that this was something that was a need that was met. Imagine stories like that happening thousands of times over and the significance of this $3 million donation becomes so real and so meaningful. John Carroll, KPBS News. Hospital resources are under a spotlight during COVID-19. Governments are counting available beds, ventilators, and personal protective equipment to monitor the pandemic's impact. But in our ongoing series looking at the region's COVID data, KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento says hospitals are also focused on the crucial component of staff. For Brittany Goyette, home is where her chihuahua Charlie is. So this is Charlie. 
Um, that can be like a little bit difficult at times um, is traveling with a pet. Goyette and her 10-year-old pup are Northern California natives, but Goyette is part of a mobile hospital workforce that's been filling gaps in staffing during COVID. And ever since the pandemic began, they've called San Diego home. And he loves it here as well. He loves running down on, by the bay. Travel nurses like her are flowing to regions where COVID is hitting hospitals the hardest. Early on, that included Sharp Chula Vista Medical Center. That's where Goyette has worked in the noisy negative pressure rooms to care for San Diegans during their toughest and sometimes final moments. Like an elderly COVID patient who was just down the hall from his wife, who also had the virus. You meet him and you're just like, oh, I really like this guy. Just really funny, really genuine, really nice guy. She recalled the experience during an outdoor interview near a busy beachside road. Both her patient and his wife were near their final treatment options, but he declined anything more and asked only for comfort care. Goyette gave him pain medication and held his hand. Um, so I gave him a little bit, but he was still struggling some. And the only thing I could think of to do was say a prayer for him out loud. Sorry. And that was hard. Because <laughs> um, I asked him if he'd like me to pray for him, and he said yes. So I said in our father, I had to pause like every three words. <laughs> his sons made it before he died, but his wife was unstable and couldn't be transported even down the hall. He, unfortunately, we weren't able to get him to see his wife. Um, that was also really tough. We ended up taking him to her afterwards so she could say goodbye for her request. The pandemic has created more demand for highly qualified ICU nurses like Goyette. Sharp Chula Vista Director of Critical Care Services, Danisha Jenkins, says the state mandates one ICU nurse for every two ICU patients. If we are getting to the point where we're having to go beyond that, then that becomes a very challenging situation to manage. She says the state allowed flexibility during the emergency because ICU nurses are a limited resource. They pulled staff from sister facilities, but Jenkins says they've also heavily relied on skilled travel clinicians to maintain their nursing community. And so you tra you're tracking your ratio daily? Hourly. Okay. Yeah, that constantly. Because COVID doesn't care about ratios. In a video diary for KPBS, Goyette recalled that day's 12-hour shift when she tended to only one patient. Um, we do that often with a lot of our COVID patients if they're requiring to be manually proned is what we call it. It took Goyette and four other gowned up colleagues to flip her sedated patient and improve their oxygen flow. We usually leave them on their back for a couple hours if they tolerate it but my patient didn't. She needed her colleagues back quickly, but they were already down the hall turning another patient. And then I had to find a whole new group of people to come flip my patient while another patient wasn't doing well. So needless to say, it was a pretty busy day, a little bit hectic. Travel nurses can help make hectic days manageable. Jenkins says Sharp works to retain its top travel clinicians so patients continue to see familiar faces, especially behind the heavy safety gear they must wear in the loud negative pressure rooms but supporting them can be draining on core staff. Because they're having to orient people every single day to our area, our processes. But it pays off. Jenkins says travel nurses often refer friends, and Sharp just extended its contract with Goyette. That means she and Charlie get at least three more months in the same place. So I don't feel like you ever feel like this isn't my community, because in the end, this is like another human, this is another soul, it's another life. That. I don't need to be part of your community to make sure I do my best job that I can. And that job has many bright spots. While more than 800 San Diegans have died in the county, thousands have survived. You feel really proud and just like happy that like you got them there. And they all leave a mark on Goyette. She remembered one recovered COVID patient the day he was going home, but he was heartbroken to be leaving before his wife, another COVID patient in the ICU. 
So I was like, well, why not like bring him up here? He already has COVID. She has COVID. Like he should see his wife. That time she was able to reunite a husband with his wife. That was KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. For more on this series and the county's COVID data, go to kpbs.org. Coming up on the podcast, in the West, wildfires don't just happen in forests. On average, we actually see more acres of rangeland burning each year than we do of forests. Researchers are looking at how fighting invasive species could help prevent drought-fueled fires out on the range. We bring you part four of our series about where fire and water intersect in the West. That's up next after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. When you think of wildfires, you probably think of forest fires, but they burn out on grasslands too, and they can be just as big. Drought and fires are hitting the Mountain West especially hard this year. Catherine Wheeler of Wyoming Public Radio has this report on how researchers are looking at solutions on how to keep those big grassland fires in check. I'm standing on the side of a rocky hill in Sheridan County in northern Wyoming, and Brian Miller is showing me all of his weeds. Here, let me grab a cheap grass so you can see it too. They're all kind of, they all kind of look the same this time of year. Yeah, this is amazing. Miller is the director of the University of Wyoming's Research and Extension Center in Sheridan, and he's performing experiments on how to manage and kill invasive annual grasses like cheatgrass, ventinata, and medusa head with herbicides. His goal is to restore rangeland to its more natural state and as a result, hopefully make events like wildfires less devastating. But first, it's helpful to understand what these uninvited guests are and why they are harmful to this environment. Dan Takella is an invasive plant extension specialist at the University of Wyoming. He says there are three things that make plants invasive. Starting with the easiest, they aren't from here. Generally, what we think is something coming from um, another country. So crossing over something like an ocean or a large boundary to get here. And that allows them to spread easily, overwhelming native plants. In Wyoming and much of the West, Impacts come to ranchers on rangeland, where these invaders can take over areas meant for grazing. That means less vegetation for animals and wildlife to eat, making the land harder to use. And like all strong enemies, invasive plants are formidable. Takella says invasive plants quickly take over what's supposed to be a patchy landscape and die, creating a lot of wildfire fuel. They create these really, really thick patches and and cause more problems by creating these large fires that wouldn't happen because typically we have plenty of what's called inner space in those plants so that the fires don't really spread all that well. Most of the attention around wildfires tends to surround forests. And while losing trees and concerns about public safety are really important, Takella says there are equal concerns about rangeland too. We have the exact same issues in rangeland. They just aren't as flashy in that they don't create as much smoke. Um, There's not as much 
biomass to burn. However, in terms of acreage, on average, we actually see more acres of rangeland burning each year than we do of forest. And Takela says the increased drought across the West isn't helping. These invasive plants can grow back much quicker than native species after a fire, and they can grow with very little water. And that just creates a cycle of problems. So how are Miller and other researchers trying to fix all this? Back on the hillside, he's showing me about 18 different plots. They were sprayed with an herbicide in different amounts at different times of year. You can see exactly where I sprayed and where I didn't, right? It's not like there's this sort of vague line. I mean, it is, it's like you just came up here and erased it. See the, like the upper plots right here above us? Some plots, everything is dead. Some plots still have plenty of brown and green villains, but in others, bright green western wheatgrass is springing up from the ground. Mueller says that's the goal with these spraying experiments. So we've got a bunch of annual grasses, but there's still a bunch of good guys that are in there as well. And so if we can just reduce the pressure from the annual grasses, then we see a really good recovery from those perennial plants. Mueller says these experiments and results aren't limited to Wyoming. There are other scientists working on the same issues across the West. In fact, the Western Governors Association has an invasive species working group where agencies can discuss how these experiments are working in states with different conditions. As we cooperate with one another and with industry and with landowners and agencies, and we see a pattern like that that is very consistent across Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, Utah, Idaho, wherever else, then it really increases our confidence. Mueller says as they start to see consistent results, they can start making recommendations to landowners and managers. And it means researchers are steps closer to understanding how to take the bad guys out for good. That was Catherine Wheeler reporting from Sheridan, Wyoming. This story is part of a series looking at where water and wildfire intersect in the West. It's produced by KUNC, KJZZ, KHOL, Aspen Public Radio, and Wyoming Public Radio. Support comes from the Walton Family Foundation. That's it for the podcast today. Thanks for listening and have a safe and fun Halloween weekend. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.